Divisive politicians, screaming heads on television, angry campus activists, Twitter trolls. In America today, there is an outrage industrial complex that prospers big time while setting Americans against each other. New York Times bestselling author and social scientist Arthur Brooks joins us to discuss Love Your Enemies, a possible solution on this week's edition of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? All right, we are very excited to have on the program today Arthur Brooks, one of our favorite thinkers in America today. Still the head of AEI for a little bit before he heads off to Harvard and a host of other adventures, uh, but has a new book out called Love Your Enemies, and uh, very grateful to have uh, Arthur spend some time with us today. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Boyd. Great to be with you, as always. All right. Well, you're you're busy, as always. You've uh, cranked out a, another book that I think is one that the, the nation is desperately in need of. Uh, give us give us a little bit of the backstory. A lot of times we see these books roll out, and we think, oh, wow, man, that's genius. Uh, but what was the what was the nexus point? What was the point where you said, okay, I need to write about this? Well, it, it came partly from experience and partly from some some work I was reading. So I'll, I'll kind of tell you about both. You know, So I, I travel around for a living. I do about 175 speeches a year. And a couple of years before the 2016 election, I saw a preview of what the rest of the country was going to see, which was the bitterness and nastiness and the really contemptuous way that we were treating each other because of politics. I was doing a, a rally, actually just a, a, like an activist event for conservatives in New Hampshire in 2014. And it was 700 of them. They were really hooping and hollering. I was the only non-politician, actually the only person not running for president <laughs> was on the on the schedule and in the middle of it you know I'm, I'm you know this think tank guy sneaks in there and I said well, huh and I said in the middle of my speech look we all agree on foreign policy and economics and politics but let's think for a minute about the people who don't agree with us and aren't here political liberals how much remember they're not stupid they're not evil they're simply Americans who disagree with us on public policy and our job is to persuade them no applause Right. And then right after that, the applause came because a lady said, I think they're stupid and evil. <laughs> and she got the applause. Right. And at that moment, Boyd, I thought of my family in Seattle because they're liberals. I mean, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, the most progressive place in the United States. And, and, and my mother was an artist. My father was a college professor. Like, what do you think their politics were? And I tell you, they weren't stupid and evil. Right. Great. They're smart. They're nice. They loved each other. They loved me. And they just took good care of me and brought me up in the right way. And, and they're probably right on a bunch of stuff that I'm not right on. I thought, if this is the way that we're talking to each other, that I'm right and you're not just incorrect, you're stupid and evil. That's a form of contempt, the mm-hmm. conviction of the worthlessness of another person. And if we do that in America, we will make permanent enemies. We'll be completely unpersuasive, which is indeed what we've become. No conservative ever persuades a liberal, and no liberal ever persuades a conservative. And worst of all, we're going to become unhappy. And that's what we've seen as well. More loneliness, more depression, more anxiety. And a lot of it has to do with our politics. Yeah, and I find it interesting. You know, some people say, okay, so you're just, you're just saying what we really need is a kumbaya moment. We just need to hug it out, you know, have a have a big old group hug as a nation, and uh, and that's not realistic, and that's not right. But you think it's much more than that. It's not about a group hug, is it? No, it's not. It's a it's a very practical thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot in the book is that no person.
person in history has ever been persuaded with hatred. You can't insult anybody into agreement. So when I talk about treating people with, with love, what I'm basically talking about is making the, the, the calculated decision that when somebody treats you with contempt, you can choose your reaction. You should choose the reaction that's going to be most persuasive. And the, the great side result is that you'll become a happier person and you'll start to feel the way that you act. Now, this is something that a lot of our listeners already know because their mothers taught them that they will become the person that they pretend to be. Fake it till you make it, right? right? But it's also the case that there's a lot of brain science behind this. And this is what I give in the book. This book is only 10% problems. It's 90% solutions. And in the solutions, I talk step by step by step about how people, when they're treated horribly politically on social media or even around the dinner table, how they can train themselves to react in such a way that other people will find them convincing and they will become happier. And, and if we do that, the movement starts in our own hearts. We actually can fix the country. That's so good. I, I think there's so many challenges and, and barriers out there. One of the things that we've been focused on a lot uh, lately here uh, at the Deseret News is is just this idea of instant certainty and that instant certainty, you know, not only does it prevent us from getting to the truth, but it also undermines trust because as soon as I hear a headline or read a headline, you know, I instantly assess this is what it means to me from my world. I'm right. You're wrong. Everything stops. So what are some of the things that you, you offer, Arthur, in, in terms of how do we how do we get to instant uncertainty <laughs> so we can be open and actually have the conversation? Well, one of the ways to do it is to make more friends including friends that we disagree with. Uh, you know, life is just more interesting when we're around people who are different than we are. You got to turn off social media. You got to talk to real people and you got to listen to those people. And in so doing, it's kind of good that you question your own beliefs or you have somebody that you like who questions your beliefs. You don't have to be fighting with each other all the time, but just explore what, you know, what it is that, that, that what the person believes. Think about what the person's moral purpose actually is and see, maybe, maybe you've got something in common. Life is better that way. And I talk about exactly how people can do that, how they can get out of their bubble a little bit and improve their lives. Yeah, you know, so, some people say that that there's just something in America that's that's just broken. <laughs> uh, and, and it could be a lot of different things. Do, do you think as a country, we're, are, are we broken? Are we fixable? What does that look like from your perspective? I think it's absolutely fixable because if you go back through history, we've had tremendous periods of contempt. Uh, we're as polarized today as we were at the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the whole 19th century, we had tremendous contempt leading to armed hot war conflict. And I don't think that we're anywhere near something like that. But we found that the self-improvement movement after the Civil War, before World War One, you know, when, when the LDS Church, by the way, was really cranking, was really, you know, picking up a lot of people that were looking for a better life. At the self-improvement movement that was secular was doing the same thing, and the Methodists, and the Baptists, and the tent revivals, and what people wanted was to have a revol- little revolution in their own heart. And that was tremendously important for the United States. It made the United States the country that it is today, was that period after the worst period of polarization. We can do that again. Mm, I love that. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, that you are argue in the book is is that it's it really isn't about the the argument uh, and and it's not even about trying to agree more it's about disagreeing better tell us give, give me a little drill down on that well so people often think that we need to agree and we don't need to agree agreement is bad if it's done for the sake of simply trying to avoid conflict uh, it's kind of a monopoly it's stagnation and mediocrity America is based on competition competition of ideas competition in politics competition in economics it brings out the best in people but we have to have basic rules of morality I mean morals have to come before markets for sure but we should remember that disagreement this competition of ideas is incredibly important for us to become better to 
to be more excellent. So I never recommend that we, we agree with people, particularly if we pretend to agree even when we don't, but we have to disagree in the right way. We have to respect other people as we disagree with them. And, and then the, the real question is how, and that's why I wrote the book. This is a, this is a how-to guide. This is a life improvement book. <laughs> and if people read it, they're going to get real solutions based on the cutting-edge social science and brain science on how they can improve their lives and be happier and more, more persuasive. So, so I want to pick up on this idea you shared of, of morals before markets. Uh, I want you to drill down on that a little bit and, and maybe do it in the context. I know you've developed this very unique relationship with the Dalai Lama. Uh, the, yeah. the, the capitalist and the, the Dalai Lama have come together. <laughs> uh, tell us what you've learned about that and how does that fit into this morals before markets? Well, the Dalai Lama and I have had a, a, a close friendship for the past six and a half years. We were working together on various projects. We write together. We've done a lot of events together where I interview him and we talk about the differences between my religion, my, my Christianity and his religion, which is Buddhism, and also between different economic systems. And what we find when we explore these topics is it really opens people's minds and opens their hearts to different ways of thinking, because they see people who think in a very different way, who love each other, who really are friends. And, and this is the key thing that all of us should be looking for, these virtuous friendships between people who are, who are different than they are. It's, it's easy to avoid these things in the, in the era of social media. It's so easy to just be surrounding yourself with people who agree with you and, and, and trying to silo your news feeds and the TV that you watch so that you'll be hearing over and over again, you're right, they're stupid, you know, that's, but that's not good for you because you'll become weak, you'll become sort of flaccid in your thinking, you won't be actually good at arguing in the right way, and, and you won't have exposure to other people and see that they're people who have needs and wants and dreams just like you. I had an interesting uh, conversation today with some of your uh, soon-to-be colleagues at uh, Harvard. Uh, Clayton Christensen, of course, has a new book out, uh, The Prosperity Paradox, which you know, is talking about innovation as the real answer to, to global poverty. Uh, and I know this is an area that you've been focused on. So I, today I, I had a chance to interview uh, Ifosa uh, Ojomo and Karen Dillon uh, about their work with Clayton on this whole idea. And I know you've got something coming in April uh, called The Pursuit uh, that I think is going to be in alignment with a lot of these things. Uh, give us a little sneak peek into into what's uh, percolating out there. The Pursuit is a, is a brand new documentary film that asks how can people pull themselves out of poverty? How can we build a society that's based on opportunity? Really starting at the, the margins. And so we, we, we're in this movie, basically the Movie Makers, which is a film production company in Austin, Texas called Emergent Order. They followed me around the world for three years in Indian slums, a little town in Kentucky, a homeless shelter in New York, uh, you know, in a street demonstration of Barcelona. We went to see people who are honest to goodness, social Democrats in Denmark to talk about their way of life. We just were in a very open way, saw how do people pull themselves out of poverty, how do they build a better life, and, and then how can all of us on the basis of this build better lives for ourselves and be happier? So it's it's screening in 100 communities around the United States. It's going to three nice film festivals, and, and, and then by the end of the summer, it'll be on Netflix. Oh, that's great. And and what's the what's the driving force there? What do you hope people come away with uh, after watching The Pursuit? I hope people will understand that they are empowered, that the free enterprise system that they participate in is the great greatest engine of prosperity and opportunity the world has ever created. I, sh I give the evidence and I, I talk to the people who are affected to show that two billion of our brothers and sisters have been pulled out of extreme poverty, starvation level poverty since I was a child because of the free enterprise system. And when we make it work for others, when we when we have it you know, printed on our hearts that this is a system obviously bounded by our moral duties and our, our religious beliefs, that the free enterprise system can and should get the next two billion people out of poverty. That's what we have to focus on. Yeah. And, and I 
I, I had this again this discussion it was just interesting of you know the the billions of dollars that have been spent on poverty programs or trying to eradicate poverty in in different places uh, and much of it has you know good causes good people good intentions uh, but a lot of them have really fallen short in terms of making that transformation uh, and and is it that we're that it's easier to uh, to throw the money at it so to speak uh, again well-intentioned folks for sure that we're not really getting the principles in place these free market principles these uh, principles of freedom and liberty and entrepreneurship uh, is that really the missing element in a lot of this it, it is it's also just you know you can't go to scale to pull people out of poverty unless people are working for themselves and it's only the free enterprise system that gives people incentives and courage to gives it gives people the just the aspiration to, to to pull themselves up because the free enterprise system tells people you're needed we need you we need your effort we need your work it's you know charity work is really really important and 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 I'm involved in it and I, I tithe my income like you do Boyd and mm-hmm. like a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast do but you know that charity can't do the work of pulling people out of poverty by the billions while you sleep and it also doesn't create the incentive so people at the end of the day can say I built this and mm-hmm. there's nothing that's a greater blessing than feel like you earned your success yeah I, I remember listening to you one time uh, I, I believe we were in Senator Lee's office uh, and and you talked about that very point of just the why work is so important that needing to be needed uh, tell us a little bit more about that well you know it's the essence of dignity is to be worthy of respect and and almost everybody in the West believes that dignity is equal people are equal not everybody in the West is a Christian of course but the Christian religion which comes from Jewish ideas uh, is based on the idea that we're we're made in God's image and God is of course worthy of respect and so therefore we are since we're worthy of respect that's dignity the problem is that we have an equal sense of our dignity to to understand your own dignity which is worth and purpose in life that requires that you're needed by your family by your community by the economy by your workplace and when you don't feel needed you won't have a sense of your dignity that brings despair that's mm. the reason that unemployment is so highly correlated with suicide and drug abuse simply because people don't feel like they're needed they can't support their families and nobody really needs them so that's what we need to do is to create a to create an economy to create a society in which every person has a sense of actually being needed in point of fact where every person is needed uh, you spend a lot of time on uh, on college campuses you talk to a lot of young people around the country many many look at the uh, the rising generation and say well you know they're just a, a bunch of narcissistic pansies and selfie takers uh, and, and I've been one of those that's pushed back on that a bit I, I think they are a little more communitarian than probably their parents uh, they do, they do it different uh, they do most of it online or you know some kind of GoFundMe account or an ice bucket challenge. But as you've interacted with young people across the country, what do you what do you see in them that worries you, and what do you see in them that gives you uh, confidence uh, moving forward? Well, the, the the thing that people often talk about is that young people today are snowflakes. You know, they're 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 a little weak, maybe a little lazier than the generation before. I, I don't believe that. I I don't find any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. I find that they're actually very hardworking, which is great. I think that the problem and what worries me is that there's a huge amount of fear in the current generation. Not fear of not getting a job, fear of conflict. And and part of the reason is because people my age, you know, I have kids who are 21, 19, and 16, it is very easy for people our age to have, you know, basically protected them from everything. Right. 
the average person under 30 didn't do anything meaningfully by themselves out of the house before they were 13 years old. You know, when you and I were kids, it was five or six. And, you know, people don't, they just don't get their strength. They don't get, they, they lose their sense of fear by being self-sufficient. The parents adjudicate the disputes that their kids are in. Then when they get to college, they have safe spaces. They have, you know, trigger warnings. They have all this kind of, this nonsense on campus that protects them from, their, from, from, from things that are, that are hard for them to hear, which is exactly what college is supposed to do, is to challenge you. By the time they're 22, the most, I think, alarming thing that I see is that they don't basically date in numbers the way that we did. We find that that young adults today, about 56% of them went out on a date last year. Hmm. When I was at that age, it was 85% went out on a date in the previous year. Very problematic because, you know, that crowd fear, St. John the Apostle told us that, that, that fear is the opposite of love. Where there is love, love casts out fear. Yeah. He said in his first letter, you know, uh, the Scripture is very clear on this, and, and the Scripture in all major religions tells the same thing, that fear is the ultimate negative emotion. Fear is the opposite of love, not hatred. So when you have a fear-based culture among young people, you're not going to have love. And when you don't have love, you're going to have more bitterness, you're going to have more hostility, you're going to have less romantic love, you're going to have fewer marriages, people are not going to be in love, mm. and all of these things are coming true. Yeah. And is that part of, of maybe what is broken in the country? Is it is it that we've we've got a, a, a rising generation that maybe hasn't uh, quite toughened up yet or had the experiences to cast out that fear, uh, and then we maybe have some uh, you know the family breakdown, some of those other things uh, are all of those interconnected from your perspective? Probably they are, but I think that in particular there's a cultural predilection among young people to be protected from 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 conflict protected from rejection. And that's a pretty new thing in America today. So one of the things that I tell young people is that they need to be entrepreneurs with their hearts. You know, and I talk to people in the 20s, I say, you know, you're not an entrepreneur unless you've been in love. You're just not, you know. <laughs> don't give me this stuff about starting businesses and venture capital. That's boring. That's minor. The real things that, that matter in your life are the, are the loves in your life. And if you actually haven't fallen in love by the time you're 27 or 28, almost certainly it's because you've been avoiding it because you're not an entrepreneurial enough person. And that's really startling for young people when I tell them that. But it's I got the data, and it's true. And so one of the things I say is your assignment in the coming year is to, is to, is to put your heart on line. The average entrepreneur has 3.8 uh, failures before the first success in business. If you actually think that you're going to be successful as a person who has love in his or her life, you need at least 3.8 bad breakups, is my view. <laughs> <laughs> wow, my number was way higher than that. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, how old were you when you got married? No, I was uh, I was 20, almost 24. Almost 24. Yeah. And so you were, did, had, you, you were just graduating from college because you were 24 when you finished uh, university, right? Because you did a mission, right? I did a mission, and then uh, I dropped out of school before. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I had that great so moment. Got, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you, I mean, you, I mean, you had a life for sure, but you also, you were all in. Yeah, You were that's all right. in. You're a life entrepreneur, and, and people need to do that today. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Hey, let's let's shift gears now, um, and let's let's talk about the swamp for a minute. So as, as we look at these these principles that uh, that you're talking about, that you write about in the book, how do we get those again? Because I don't think these are these are clearly not left or right. These are just principles, and yet it seems you know as we talked about in the open that you've got you know the the national news media in particular is is yelling and screaming. You've got both sides that raise billions of dollars a year off of anger, fear, angst, and frustration. Uh, you know, convincing right. everyone that their hair's on fire. So how do we turn how do we turn that tide? 
Well, to begin with, we need to stand up to the man. That's the old 60s expression when somebody's <laughs> keeping you down. And the truth is, I have data that show that 93% of Americans hate how divided we become. I show all this stuff in Love Your Enemies. But that means the other 7% doesn't hate how divided we become. That For them, it's not a, it's not a bad habit of contempt. For them, it's a lifestyle and a living. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the highly partisan media and the hateful pundits and the crazy yep. college professors and the and, and, and the politicians who are, who are actually trying to, to gin up a whole lot of hatred to keep themselves in power. The populists who are telling us the other side is stupid and evil. That's a really bad thing, and we need to stand up to that. We need to recognize it. And, and the way we recognize it is not by standing up to people in the outraged industrial complex on the other side. you got to stand up to it on your, your side, side. Yeah. and then it will set you free. If you do that, I'm telling you, I've made a list and I've crossed people off the people I'm not reading, I'm not listening to. And my life is so much better than it was. I got to say, it's funny. If you don't spend time on Twitter, you don't think America is about ready for a civil war. <laughs> it turns out that America is kind of OK. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you stay off Twitter because Twitter's all 7 percent all the time. Uh, and don't you think it's it, it's true also that the my my sense has always been traveling around the country that that we really aren't that divided. Um, we, we know dictators have used division as a as a way to maintain power and the status quo forever. Uh, and it seems to me that you know when when the American people experience these principles. Uh, it, it's like oxygen. You know, they're, they're never going to ask for these in a uh, in a Pew Research poll. <laughs> so they don't right. quite know what to ask for. But when they experience it, uh, it is like oxygen. It's it's, it's very liberating, yeah. as you said. Uh, but how do we how do we push that oxygen around a little bit more? Well, to begin with, what we do is we model it. You know, when somebody treats you with contempt, and if you go on social media, or you talk about politics any place, you'll be treated with contempt very quickly. Eye rolling, sarcasm, a complete dismissal of your point of view. Stop breathe, say a little <laughs> prayer if you need to, and then answer the way that you want to. And I, by the way, this is not just, you know, I, I, I hope people can figure it out on their own. On the contrary, that's why I wrote Love Your Enemies. Yeah. In the book, I detail chapter and verse. I mean, go through the list. It gives you a checklist of things that you can do. And if you practice these things, you'll be great at this. You can choose the way that you're going to behave. And in so doing, people will be way more persuaded by your point of view. You'll become happier and people want to be more like you. Okay. How soon before changes America? I don't know. I mean, but we have to start sometime, and it better start with each one of us. And the best news of all is just by starting that movement with yourself, you'll be a happier, more persuasive, more successful person. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and let me ask you, just as, as we come down the home stretch here, tell me, tell me two people who you think are modeling this well. And I don't care if they're famous, infamous, <laughs> or otherwise, people you've come across in all of your travels. Just give me two people uh, and an example of how they are living these principles and how it's making a difference. So there are a lot of people that I see in state and local government who are doing this who just, they're rebelling against the hate. If I look at my friend Doug Ducey, who's the governor of Arizona, I mean, he's partisan. I mean, he's a conservative, and a lot of liberals really disagree with his policies, but he's working to to cool down the temperature all the time. He's not calling people out as stupid and evil just because they disagree with him. And he's the governor of a big state, Governor Herbert in Utah, same deal. And I really admire that. Many, many, many governors at this point. See, we have a tendency to over-centralize our attention on Washington, D.C., but there's many more interesting and constructive things going on in the states and in cities. And I see a lot of that. 
I also see a lot of people that are trying to cool the temperature by by treating each other with love and respect on on, on college campuses today. I mean, it's easy to say that the places are all just bastions of craziness, but it's not true. I mean, there are a lot of places where where I see people working together, trying to understand each other. It, you know, my new institution, Harvard University, there's just all kinds of efforts for people of different and diverse points of view to understand each other, to see each other as real people under the circumstances. And then, of course, I see this in communities constantly, people who are unsung heroes that are finding ways to listen to people who are different than themselves, to practice a real diversity of ideas. And so I, I think that the answer is local. The answer yeah. is not national. We're not going to find, I mean, there are some people in the Senate, I love Mike Lee, I've known him for years and years, and I think he's a real, I think he, he wants to unite, even though he's got strong points of view. But I think it's a hard environment right now. So I think that Americans need to look more local, more in their communities, more in their companies, more in their families, and more in their state and local governments to find the leaders that are going to practice loving your enemies. Therefore what? Arthur, you know, you know the program is Therefore What? So this is the Therefore What moment. Uh, people have been listening for the last 25 minutes. They're going to read your book. Uh, what do you hope they think different? What do you hope they do different uh, as a result? They will. The easiest thing to do is to love the people who agree with you and, to, and, and even to love your neighbor, right? What I want them, what I want people to think differently about is to remember that the people who disagree with you, they're not just your neighbor. Even if you thought of them as your enemy, these are your allies in building a better country. Because when people can disagree, to be real foes ideologically, and not hate each other, that's iron sharpening iron, as the Proverbs say. Now, mm. I'm not talking about it. Here's a real therefore what moment. I'm not talking about civility. Civility is a garbage standard. If I said, hey, boy, my wife and I were civil to each other, you'd say, <laughs> Arthur, you need counseling. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about tolerance. I'm not talking about agreement. I'm talking about love for people with whom we disagree. And I want people to think about that deeply and how they can do it today. Fantastic. Arthur Brooks, the book is Love Your Enemies. Uh, Arthur, we always appreciate your time and your great insight. Uh, best of luck as you continue and wrap up at uh, AEI and your new adventures uh, at Harvard and, and beyond. Thank you very much, Boyd. I, I really appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you in Utah. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Arthur. Bye. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?